This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast for the 19th of February 2016, really? Oh, God. 2019, a podcast about Apache Doop and the surrounding ecosystem for anyone working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is Dave, and here is my, I was going to say deep and learned colleague, Yon, but instead I will call him Loki the Trickster, Yon. <laughs> You didn't see me switch that over, did you? I was, this was an empirical test to see how influenceable you are and how much you actually look at what you read before saying it. <laughs> well, I I did notice, and I was going to seamlessly go over it, but I thought, no, no, I'm not. I'm going to call this out that this is the kind of this is the kind of thing that he does all the time just to mess with me. Anyway, hey, I never made you sound like a girl, like I promised you in the first episode we ever recorded. So. That is true. Although, you know, there's still time. <laughs> we hope. We hope. I mean, after last uh, news episode, I'm not entirely sure if you're not on the blacklist. That's true. Well, I mean, the world hasn't ended yet. And so, I'm out of a bunker. Know, uh, yeah, 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 that's true. The big data bunker. <sighs> anyway, anyway uh, all seriousness aside, this is a news episode. <laughs> it is. It is. And we're in a bit of a giddy mood, I guess. Uh, at least I am. Because you've got time off. Time off? I don't even know what time off is. Uh, no, that was last week. I agree that when we're recording this, time off is still future, but by the time this gets out, it's going to be history. Yeah, oh, so, disappointing. Yeah, it's all anticipation at this point, I guess, and it will be sad, disillusionment, and uh, painful <laughs> muscles probably <laughs> by the time people hear about this. <laughs> Okay, so moving swiftly on, and thinking about anticipation, we obviously have the DataWorks Summit Barcelona coming up. Uh, yes, March 18th to 21st, 2016, or 2019, didn't change that one. And we have a free ticket giveaway. We do. What are the rules, Jan? Uh, we don't have any rules anymore. I know I have a nice page on the Roaring Elephant uh, webcast, uh, podcast, I should say, website, which is webcast is a shortening mm-hmm. of podcast website. Uh, website of course it is whatever uh, but the rules are simple uh, just email us at dws19barcelona at roaringelephant.org and I'd see I made a mistake there as well rectifying that there I will also tweet about this of course and uh, if you say something nice about us in your tweet you'll actually get a better chance of getting the ticket can I say that Ooh, waited <laughs> waited I see okay hey I'm human okay now we'll just well, do an impartial draw of everybody who uh, used that uh, email address between now and, um, well, this probably has already been going on. I should have tweeted about this a uh, week ago. So if you have already mm-hmm. sent in a mail, that's already in the can. You can send in multiple mails. Doesn't help, but it keeps me busy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So cue people sort of firing up uh, spam bots and, and, and DDoSing your mail server. That's okay. I've got a big data machine here taking all of the email addresses and reducing them back to one. It's a simple MapReduce operation that even my little CPUs can do, my little Atom <laughs> CPUs here. Uh, but we need to say an end date, and considering this is going live on the 19th, let's say we end the uh, raffle one week after, which would then be... Um, we'll announce the winner around the 26th sometime. Sounds good. So... Don't delay. Tweet an email today. 
I'll tweet an email as uh, David Deedley says correctly. Tweeting us also helps you in the raffle. Like if it's a tweet and you get a second ticket in the raffle. So emailing helps, tweeting helps. And basically doing anything you can do to make other people know about us helps. So make sure you let us know if you let other people know and you may get the free ticket. Indeed. I should have been a radio DJ. Not really. Um, possibly <laughs> not. Well, if I wouldn't be a radio DJ, I should find something else to do, right? So uh, see what I did there. I did. I did. You're going to talk to me about data science hiring and what's driving it, aren't you? Yes, news episodes, so news articles. And the first article I dug up is pretty recent still. It's from January 30th from the Datanami site. Difficult word. word. Yeah, speaking is hard. It's by Alex Woody, and it's entitled What's Driving Data Science Hiring in 2019? Um, it's not an in-depth technical article at all. It's more of a, uh, hey, we've got a shortage of data scientists out there if you want to get in on the... Gravy boat, gravy train, these are, the thing, these are things you should put on your resume and uh, also know about. Those things go kind of hand in hand in hand. Uh, if you want to make yep. a good uh, chance at landing a job here, and it's a bit of a weird article, I must say, because it has some statistics in there, it has some data in there, it has some stuff I totally disagree with in there, but that's not new. But apparently, as the article starts, data science jobs are still among the highest paying jobs around the world. And I do think that is True, there's still a big shortage in there. Although, if you look at the second paragraph, he says, or at least a LinkedIn workforce report found that there's 151,000 data scientist jobs going unfilled in the USA. That sounds like a big number. If you actually look at it in context, where there's like how many Americans today? 326 million or something? That's, That's like 0.0.5%. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But that being said, I do agree. I have no idea how the US situation is because it's a bit far away from here. But I do know that here in Europe, in my little corner of the world, I know my, the customers that I talk to uh, really are struggling to find qualified uh, people uh, to fill those jobs. Yeah. Sure yeah, yeah. As, as you say, the, the number of 151,000 sounds like a big number, but actually, comparatively speaking, relatively tiny. Um, yeah, but it's a, it's a big number in a tiny niche market as well. Because mm-hmm. it's not because you have, it, there's a, a short number of shortage. It's uh, apparently, I have no idea how many people are actually working as a data scientist today. That would actually be good information to see if this is. I don't even know how many people work in you know, big data overall yeah, today. Exactly. There has never been any kind of research on that. And of course, LinkedIn Nothing is a bit seen. biased here because it's uh, basically a uh, resume site. Say what you want. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a community, it's a uh, social media site, whatever. But it's built to put your resume on and find a job, right? So, yep. yeah, I guess. But anyway, there's a shortage there, and they're talking a bit about the skill sets you'll need. And apparently, you need to be a mathemati- mathematical, statistical, competent person with expertise in distributed computing and business acumen. Uh, the business acumen one is the hardest one, I think, because in my experience. Mm-hmm. Mathematical and statistical competency and business acumen kind of fight each other. <laughs> yeah, it, it, well, I mean that that is why they call these sort of these roles unicorns and mm-hmm. and, and you know say they're particularly. And I I would I would disagree with the wording of that as well. I don't think you need business acumen so much, uh, unless unless I'm sort of uh, misreading it. But I I, I think. 
what they should be thinking about is more um because to me business acumen is more about you know what makes a no, a smart business deal or anything like that. Whereas Being an entrepreneur, I think, as it's called. Yeah, exactly. Whereas, whereas to me, I, I think things things like a sort of domain knowledge exactly. are, are, are more more important. But you know, maybe that's what they mean, and it was just a, a slip yeah, of the. I think they mean more slip of, of an keyboard. affinity thing, where the you shouldn't be a, a purely theoretical statistician or mathematician mm. who just does numbers mm. for the fun of numbers. You also have to have a willingness to invest yourself in the domain your company is working in. Yeah. And yeah. have some, yeah, I'm not going to call it social skills because it's not social skills, but have some business skills in that way so you can actually apply your knowledge in more practical yep. environments. So, uh, but yeah, acumen, it's a bit of a weird, mm, yeah, weird word to use there, I guess. But uh, same goes for unicorns because unicorns don't exist and data scientists do exist, as far as I know. And or unicorns. do they? <laughs> maybe it's all maybe it's maybe it's all a, a, a conspiracy theory anyway so data scientists produce rainbows and there's a pot of gold at the end of their yes no anyway going on there uh, they give also some uh, uh, ranges of uh, salaries in there now these are dollar numbers and they're in the mm-hmm. US marketplace so I have absolutely no way of of, of, of putting that into any context that's usable, I must admit. But for me, the numbers seem low. Hmm. Um, I don't know. Because considering the US typically has higher wages in pure numbers than over here, um, I don't know. I'm not sure. I think this is a, for me, it's a realistic estimate. Let's call it that. Hmm. Uh, they, all, they do all admit that there's differences in where you are. Obviously, Francisco Bay Area, also well known as Silicon Valley, uh, pricing is a bit higher there, but of course that's yep. offset with a bigger cost of living as well, so I'm not entirely sure if that makes a difference in the end. But the important thing, of course, with the article is the skills that they actually endorse you to have. And this is where I have a bit of a problem, because the first skill they list here is the programming languages you should be, uh, you should be brought up on, which is a bit weird. I mean, yes, data scientists and machine learning engineers, they should know some programming, uh, should have some programming skills, let's call it that. Mm -hmm. But to really say that I'm going to take a a resume from a data scientist and look, okay, what programming languages does he he know? Predominantly. It's a bit of an odd thing to start with, isn't it? I'd expect uh, the data scientist to be, uh, uh, I'm not going to say intelligent enough, but I I do mean more flexible enough in the intelligence department that he can actually adapt to what I'm using in my corporation already. Because I'm not going to retool my entire workflow to facilitate the first data scientist I'm hiring, which Mm. of course makes it harder to hire somebody. I agree on that part. But it should also, you, you can't just say, I know this language and that's what it has to be. Well, I don't, I'm, see, I'm not sure that I agree with that because in in a lot of situations, I've you know I've I've seen this from both sides, from both um, data scientists going into roles, but also from organisations hiring them, and there does seem to be a common feeling that um, it's actually it's actually you're better off. Um, letting the data scientists do what they do in the languages that they are most comfortable and most productive with, at least in the short to medium term. They may choose to 
expand their you know their their technology map into other languages or technologies as as it progresses but um it i would say it seems to be more in the other direction where people use what they're happiest and most familiar with and organizations don't typically force people to to retool to match you know whatever stack or platform that they've got in place today now it does mean that there is um, inefficiencies taking yeah. something from the data scientist through into production because it usually means that once the data scientist has done his initial kind of work, that, the, that there is there has to be then some sort of translation work done to take it from, you know, this is the the sort of the, the theoretical proof of concept, if you like, and, you know, we need to, we need to translate that into, I don't know, Java or whatever because that's what our production you know, environment is or whatever it might be. So, yeah, I I, I think that because of the rarity and scarcity of really good data science skills, I think organizations have become a lot more flexible on that front. Again, that's just, it's just my personal opinion, just from what I've seen. Yeah, but I'm going to disagree on that one because I give it a year ago, perhaps, I would have agreed full harder for harder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, the biggest thing blocking uh, advanced analytics in general, let's say, is productionizing the stuff. And by allowing your data scientist to use whatever he's comfortable in, you're already bl- setting up for failure down the road here. And I'm feeling today, my feeling, my personal, just like it's your personal opinion, my personal opinion here is that mm-hmm. we're now over the hump, let's say, and people are expected to do data science for some tangible results. So productionizing is already on the on the roadmap, let's say, when they start the thing. And while mm. you're agreeing, I'm agreeing that the data scientist can work in isolation when he's doing his development, exploration, the smart stuff, trademark. But if that needs to land somewhere in production, as you say, somebody's going to have to translate it. And quite often, it's going to be the data scientist that's going to translate it because he's the only one who knows what he's doing. Because the, yep. the, 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 the subject matter is specialized. The language he chose, which apparently isn't what the rest of the company uses, by definition, is also specialized on him. He'll have to do the translation himself, or they'll have to hire somebody external, with all problems accounted to that uh, that could come with that. So, from 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 that's my thought process here. But I think mm, that today, mm, mm. I don't think you can go there anymore. Also, because and that's the next part of the article here. If you look at the languages that are actually in play, there's not that many. I mean, yeah, you true, got, true. You got Python, which is the main one, and if you're refusing to learn Python and still want to work in a data science environment, you're in trouble. Sorry. That's just today, that's how it is. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I did here, yeah, I, I totally disagree with the first point here, where the JavaScript apparently is the go-to language for developers. I agree with that, but not for data scientists. As far as I know, unless if you're building a, a Bitcoin miner to put in as a hijacking script on a website, data scientists typically don't do much JavaScript. They also talk about TypeScript at a certain point, and then they talk about C. Again, not really seeing that one, but then they end up with Python, Java, and uh, Scala as well. Uh, where, and interestingly, apparently, Scala used to be third place and now has dropped to sixth place. And that does actually mm. correspond with what I see in the, in, the, in the field. And again, that's because productionizing, productionizing, listen to me, productionizing Python scripts is easier mm-hmm. than Scala because the whole productionizing towards a Kubernetes cluster or a Mesos cluster using Docker containers, using a Python script is is thought out. That just works. That just 
press of a button, nope, not gonna go that far. But that's how most people do it. And Scala is will give you a better, incrementally better result than a Python thing because it's a compiled language versus a scripting language. But it's just a lot harder to develop that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, look on the bright side. At least they didn't suggest that PHP was a, a sort of a, a go-to language. No, no, so, Perl, you know. Perl. I love me some Perl, man. <laughs> um, it did also strike me as odd that Python is still uh, trailed on... What does that mean? Trailed by. So is, are those two behind it or in the front of it then? Because Python which can be used to write... Python is trailed by means that anything after that so, um, those words is behind Python. Okay, so Kotlin and Go are below it. I wasn't entirely sure if my English was up to snuff there. Thank you mm-hmm. for doing that. Uh, I can see why Go is popular because, uh, well, it has a big uh, uh, company organization behind it, I guess. But Kotlin, I never heard of. No, first time. Apparently, I've done some digging before the, the episode, which is our, my, my usual preparation for this, five minutes before it starts. Oh, God, I have to talk about something. <laughs> and apparently, it's a language that's very close to Java because it can use Java libraries natively. Mm-hmm. But has a better... I mean, Java has a couple of problems because it's one of, it was one of the first uh, run-everywhere languages, let's say. Uh, some say that C-sharp was a Im- improvement on top of that, and apparently Kotlin is going that same vision, that same way, where okay. it's the same idea, use the same backend, the same framework, let's say, but has some better programming um, syntax, not syntax, but uh, how you should write your code. Constructs. So, anyway, didn't really know about that one, so it's maybe something to look at. But uh, yeah, Python, of course. Uh, if you're doing data science, Python on your resume will help you a lot. And do try to get Python 3 in there, because Python 2 is so 2000. Indeed. <laughs> Going on in the same programming skills, let's talk about Spark. I always have a problem when people call Spark a programming language, but they're calling it a framework here, which makes more sense. Mm-hmm. Again, here in their in this article, which is supposed to be building a resume for a data science job, they now tell it it's trailing behind things like React, AngularJS, Vue, Django, and Ruby on Rails. Uh, those ain't data science things, brother. Uh, mm. I mean, I love Ruby on Rails. More people should be doing it, but I think they missed the boat a bit there. AngularJS, that's uh, TypeScript. That's uh, JavaScript, as we said before. Django and Vue, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't see these in the same realm at all. It seems to be a little bit mixed up, doesn't it? Yeah. The the sort of the, this second half of the article is all a little bit. I don't know. Uh, they've rushed, taken maybe, a lot of sketchy. statistics and picked the things mm. that fit what they were trying to tell. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> bit, I guess. Yeah, let's call it uh, a creative journalism. <laughs> okay. But anyway, uh, one last thing I want to talk about about this article, and then uh, oh, sorry, before I go to the infographics, I want to talk about. I do like this uh, little quote here that uh, what gives Spark its legs, it's its broad applicability and high performance. I'm totally with you there. Quote: You can have one Spark interface for just about any database. So people doing Spark, you're doing database analysis, right? You're, you're DBA, just uh, so you know. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. But anyway, the last thing I want to mention here is the little infographic at the bottom there where we didn't do a prediction show uh, this year for for reasons. 
But there's a little thing about real-world applications of technologies by 2020 where they're looking at a a number of uh, things, Internet of Things, deep learning, cloud machine learning, computer vision, augmented or virtual reality, blockchain, and quantum computing. And uh, the couple things that strike me as interesting here, and which is the weird thing about Internet of Things, see if you agree with this, it's the most applied and still the most overhyped. That's weird. (laughs) That's also one of the only ones that actually over 50% seen as realistical. While Internet of Things, I mean, there have been so many data breaches already, people should understand that that it's actually being applied all over the place, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the second one, the, the deep learning versus cloud ML, apparently cloud machine learning is still seen as less realistic than deep learning. Uh, again, I'm biased. I live in a cloud world, but I see a lot more application of cloud machine learning than deep learning here. Luckily, though, the hypeness of those things is apparently almost zero. Which, yeah, makes sense, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Last thing I want to talk about, and yes, I, I'm, I'm always in favor of uh, uh, blockchain. But uh, I'm going to quote from the article here so people cannot say that I am biased and I just clicked on something which means my uh, annotations are gone. So I have to find this here. Yes. The fact that blockchain and quantum computing, already nice that those are in the same realm, in the same uh, comparison, were considered mostly unrealistic technologies by 2020 actually lends this report greater credibility. Uh, I think this is a mic drop moment. I'm not going <laughs> to. Okay. <laughs> anyway. So on that note. If you want to look at the job in data science 2019, there's some interesting stuff in here about uh, wages and uh, shortages. Take the advice on your resume and a bit of, uh, a bit of salt, perhaps. Fair enough. Fair enough. So if you're not leaving the hype, what should they do? Well, if you if you're uh, if you're interested in this space and you want to get a bit deeper, uh-huh, see what I did there. Um, there's there's uh, a set an updated set of practical deep learning for coders um, courses slash lessons slash training, um, which was updated for 2019. Now, this apparently is version three of this. Um, I don't think I've ever come across this before or any of its previous revisions. Um, but you can find it at um, www.fast.ai. Um, it is there will obviously be links in the show notes. Um, and there's a really nice um, sort of initial article by um, Jeremy Howard who talks through, you know, why this basically. Um, this is, although it's the third iteration of this stuff, it is actually all new material. Um, including a whole different sort of approaches and applications that you know haven't just been lifted and shifted from previous iterations. So even if you've gone through and seen this before, um, could well be a useful sort of thing to refresh yourself. Um, the article that we'll link to... stuff in there with some techniques that haven't even been published in academic papers yet. Um, if they're not in academic papers yet, maybe they're not very good or thought out yet. I don't know. I couldn't possibly comment. I, this is definitely one of those articles that I thought was cool and interesting, but I'm not really in this space. So this is definitely one of those ones that I think is more interesting to you and possibly our audience than actually to me specifically. And it's um, an article that tries to sell you something, so take it with that uh, mindset. Yeah, 
But apart from yeah. that, I yeah. mean, I love their subline, making neural nets uncool again. I like that. <laughs> and apart from that, yeah, the information is, is sound and solid in there. So sorry for interrupting yeah, yeah. there. No, no, no problem at all. So the, the article um, is quite good, although you might think, well, where's the rest of it? Uh, it does just give you a very quick, you know, one pager on each of the uh, lessons, as they call them. Um, but uh, if you if you go ahead and um, hit the, the second link, that'll take you directly into the actual course, and that, that the URL is course.fast.ai. Um, and then you'll see a navigation thing on the left-hand side with, you know, various, like, getting started and the lessons themselves, server setup, returning to work, production, and all that sort of stuff. Um, if you click on one of the lessons, you actually get sort of redirected then through to um, the actual sort of uh, YouTube video and the sort of supported um, supported resources and notebooks, spreadsheets, and uh, as, as input data and other stuff and other resources that also follow on from that um, from that that element. So it's I think you know and I I can't I can't say for absolute certain because as I say this isn't really exactly my bag. But it seems to be very well put together. I mean, it's their third iteration, so it's not like this is their their first attempt at this. Um, so I think if you're interested in this kind of space, it would definitely be worth uh, having a quick look at it. Yeah, this is free, right? This is no, there's no payment. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, completely free. Whatever, it's just uh, nope. See, oh yeah, I was seeing here. Cost can be a little less zero twenty uh, twenty five cents per hour, but that's when you're using comp- uh, cloud compute. So. <laughs> Indeed, indeed. I mean, there's 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 a cost to sort of actually spinning this stuff in, in the cloud if that's where you choose to run it. But like the the lessons, I, I've just gone ahead and, and clicked on uh, lesson four, for example. You know, it's it's a one hour and forty three minutes and thirty eight seconds sort of video. So it's it's a decent chunk of of depth, and that's just one of one of the lessons. Yeah. They, so the article says about two hours per lesson. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is particularly so, yeah. on deep learning, so it's not talking it about is. machine learning, it's talking about the real neural network stuff, which is uh, yep. new and coming. Um, yep. We'll be going in more depth in that in the articles following this one, but there is a bit of the uh, yeah overhyping of neural networks going on at the moment. That being said, mm-hmm. even if you're not using neural networks, being able to intelligent, intelligently decide why you don't need a neural network, but normal machine learning is good enough, requires yep. you to know at least what it does. And yeah, yes, yeah. you're not going to take a six-month course for that. But yep. this stuff seems to cover most of the bases. You have uh, CNNs there, which are convoluted neural networks, mostly into the uh, image recognition stuff, NLP, natural language mm-hmm. processing, and so RNNs, recurrent networks, that's also in there as well. You have backpropagation, neural networks from scratch. I mean, I haven't looked through all of the lessons myself. The one thing I'm yeah. missing is reinforcement. Enforcement learning, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be in there somewhere as well. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it looks like a, a nice uh, roundup of all the usual suspects, let's say. Yeah, yeah. Also includes, uh, it's used at Jupyter Notebooks as front-end, which is great, because that's yep. basically what you're going to be using as a data scientist anyway. Um, using GPUs in there as well. Now, for doing stuff like this, I usually don't recommend using GPUs because typically your examples will be short and to the point and won't require the use of it. Although it's nice to have a couple of ex- examples there. If you want to go from CPU to GPU, this is how you do it. And basically it means uh, com- linking a different library or changing a configuration setting and making sure you have the hardware. So 
so it doesn't yeah, really yeah. make that big of a difference. But it's, it's good that it's in there. We also have some forums, apparently. We can actually talk with fellow classmates. It's always a good thing, which is usually what I get the most benefit from. Um, also, they're basing the stuff on PyTorch. PyTorch is mm-hmm. their neural uh, language of choice, apparently, which is good because it's very accessible. It's easy to understand. It has a nice Keras layer, Keras interaction interaction with it as well, so that's good. Because more and more people don't actually write in the lower language, lower layer languages, but you're using abstraction layers on top of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, what I've, when I was looking at this um, article, the thing that struck me uh, in a positive way is that they're mm-hmm. not uh, pushing TensorFlow. And that's good. And that's not because yeah. TensorFlow is bad. I'm not saying TensorFlow is bad. TensorFlow is great. TensorFlow is great. Keras is great. CNTK is great. MXNet is great. All the library, libraries are great. I'm just taking what they have in their article here. Uh, there's nothing wrong with these things, but the whole TensorFlow hype was a real hype. And I had actually conversations with people that had the opinion that neural networks equal TensorFlow and vice versa. Mm-hmm. It's good to see that the whole neural network deep learning hype has progressed and we're now actually talking about it as a computational approach that has a number of uh, tools to your, at your disposal. TensorFlow being a great one if you're doing uh, natural languages, for example. Uh, CNTK, if you look at the ResNet results, which they also have in their lesson plan here, that's more, CNTK has better results there. MXNet has its own uh, good and bad things. So each of these approaches have their pros and cons, let's say, and not having to push something, but taking the most generic open source PyTorch, not in a generic, it does everything badly, but generic and approachable, uh, is a, a nice evolution, I think. I like this. Mm-hmm. Very good. Very good. Not going to talk about any of the visualizations they have in there. No, I think I will leave it as an exercise to the, for the the reader slash listener. Uh, well, I like to have dog pictures before cat pictures. So that's always a good. Thing. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, looks Fair interesting. Enough. Looks uh, looks like a nice thing. And as you said, third the third uh, iteration of the course. So uh, all the kinks should be out by now. Indeed, indeed. Or they've introduced new kinks, but you know, that's fun too. Uh, the kinks had good so, as well. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of kinks, I mean, speaking of deep learning, <laughs> deep learning the, kinks. The, the, well, maybe. I mean, the, one of the questions that does come up is deep learning versus you know the classical machine learning, and therefore, well, I mean, the article that, that yeah, the article that, that you brought to the table. <laughs> I actually have uh, two articles about that. Uh, mm-hmm. They're both a bit older. They're from uh, the middle of last year, but uh, I've been having some conversations with customers about this very subject recently, and I had to dig for some uh, inspiration, let's say, and I found a couple that were actually nice. And uh, as I talked a bit before already, this whole hype for neural networks kind of made it seem like uh, you had statistics, and now that's been supplanted, so deprecated in favor of machine learning, and now that's been deprecated, supplanted by neural networks, and everyone's used neural networks because... All the rest is just old garbage. Well, no, not really. Uh, There's pros and cons to both approaches. And the first article here by George Seif on the uh, towardsdatascience.com, which is actually a medium uh, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, sub-site, apparently. Uh, It's called Deep Learning versus Classical Machine Learning, where he actually has a nice... um, understandable comparison and contrasting between the two approaches to help people make up their own damn minds, which is always a good approach. 
And yep. I kind of wanted to go through his uh, way of thinking about this and give my view on it, because, of course, I think I know better. I'm cut that out in post-production, no problem. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> so I'm just going to grab my notes in there as well, because uh, I did do some note-taking this time, which I don't often do, to be honest. So the, he first goes into the reasoning why deep learning would be better than classical machine learning. And his first uh, topic here is best-in-class performance. And he has a nice graph there that demonstrates quite, nor, quite, quite nicely that uh, machine learning gives less results, less good results than a neural network can give you. And the keyword in my last sentence was can. Neural networks can give you just replacing whatever you're doing from logistical regression to a neural network does not automatically give you better results. It's still a lot of work, and it will involve a lot of cost. Basically, you kind of could... I, I, I'm going to say it anyway. You could say it's a brute force approach, where you just add more mm. money, more resources to make it, give it a better more result. Data. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, the data comes later. That's in the second part. This no, no. is mostly talking about more money because you're going to use GPUs, because you will need to use GPUs because neural networks on CPUs are very, very slow. Classical machine learning works well on normal CPUs and can have an advantage on CPUs on GPUs as well. But if you're going neural yep. networks, you will have to invest more, and this kind of sounds like put more money into it and you get a better result. It's not entirely correct, because I do agree that neural network, the approaches that neural networks use are quite different from the statistical, statistically approaches that the uh, classical machine learning uh, approaches uses. But still, you will have to put more resources in there to get that better performance. And it's always going to be a weighing of uh, cost versus, uh, uh, how do you call that? Cost uh, balance, uh, the cost benefit yeah, balance. cost benefit. Exactly. If it's worth your money. And that actually nice, goes nicely into the second one as well. His second point is it scales effectively with data, meaning that neural networks will uh, profit from more data more than mm. classical machine learning algorithms do. And that's true. But if I look at his little uh, chart he put, put in there, the little black picture there with the blue and the red line, uh, first of all, a great, it's always great to see graphs without any units, measure, or numbers on there. So it's more of a thought process. It's more of a representation than an actual graph, yes. isn't it? Let's face it. And if I look at that, I'm still disagreeing with it because as you, if you look at his graph, it seems mm -hmm. like the older learning algorithms with the red angry line are a little bit better, but mostly in line with deep learning until deep learning shoots off into the, the better stratosphere and older learning algorithms flatten off into a no, more, no longer improving with more data. I think the blue line should have more of a S-curve in there because it's going to take a lot of data to get a deep learning algorithm at least as good as a classical algorithm. And then it will indeed bypass it. But if I look at this graph, it would mean I don't have to look at the older algorithms. I can just start with deep learning. and It'll be at least as good. Yeah. And that's not how it works. To start with neural networks, you need a ton of data, a lot of data. There's only one example here a bit further down where he talks about 1.2 million images for an image recognition thing where he doesn't specify if it's recognizing more than one thing. With 1.2 million, I would say, probably only recognizes one thing, the hot dog, yep. not hot dog uh, approach. And that's uh, something to keep in mind here because, yes, if you have a lot of data, a really lot of data, you will get a lot better results with neural networks. 
if you add the more, the more money, which we talked about earlier before. But you will need a lot of data, and uh, there's only a couple of companies out there that have that amount of data, that amount of data per domain where you want to have a neural network for. Because it's one thing to say I have a petabyte of data, yes, but you have a petabyte of data across the entire organization. You don't have a petabyte of data in pictures of apples. Well, maybe you do. In that case, you go neural networks. But I think I'm right in thinking that that's a minority out there. That's a that's a lot of apple pictures. Um, yeah, but if you like your apples, then it's it's the way to go, man. It's it's it keeps the doctor away. Well, everyone has a hobby. <laughs> anyway, moving on to the next one. No need for feature engineering, and that's where I totally hate him uh, with a vengeance. Because he's right, yes, you don't do feature engineering, you don't do hyper-tuning uh, parameters, uh, stuff. But you will still need to select the data you will use to train your neural network on. Garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. That doesn't change if you're doing neural networks or not. And the problem I see a lot happening here is because you need that much more data for neural networks... Uh, we kind of let more garbage in because that way the, the neural network seems to be training better but in production it doesn't really perform as well as it should be. So no need for feature engineering. Uh, I don't like that. It's true that your neural network will be able to kind of help you with it. But yeah, be careful on that one. I, I think this is a very dangerous statement there. It's fair enough. His final advantage of neural networks above machine learning, classical machine learning, is adaptable and transferable. And if you read this thing, it sounds like it's a great thing, right? It's a transfer learning where you don't have to train your entire algorithm yourself. You can just use one already trained and use transfer learning to apply some extra data to the model and skew it to predict, classify, or whatever, recognize what you want to play with. And I'm a total fan of transfer learning. It's a great thing. And if it wasn't there, it would be uh, very sorely missed. But the thing is, it's actually been invented to solve the problems with neural networks, basically meaning you need a lot of data. So he's actually giving a symptom of why they're bad as the reason they're good, which is a bit of a circle of reasoning thing, which I don't exactly agree with. But I do like the fact it's in the list here because if you haven't heard of transfer learning yet, then this is not reinforcement learning. This is something different. Um, if you're doing anything with image recognition or natural language recognition, transfer learning is something you really need to be aware of. Uh, and it does help alleviate this thirst of uh, massive amounts of data in uh, neural networks. Now going on to the second part of the article where he actually goes about why classical machine learning is better than deep learning, it's pretty much the inverse of the first points, which yeah, yeah, yeah. I can do it like that. Uh, so yeah, it works better on small data. Yeah, cover that one. Financially computationally cheap. Yep, cover that one. Last one is one that's a bit of a hype at the moment. I don't disagree with it. Easier to interpret. And mm. uh, yes, uh, now that things like deep learning, machine learning, or just let's call it artificial intelligence in general becomes more of a uh, everyday fact. It's it's everywhere these days. If you get for go, go for a loan or try to get a Twitter account, you probably go through one of those uh, models these days. People are being asked to explain why model says no, and having a model that's easier to interpret does help in that point. So, yes, he's correct that, uh, as he says, on the other hand, deep networks are very black box, but I 
think that's going to change. And they're a black box because people using them don't understand them. And that's pretty much the same way that uh, the original machine learning was happening because you had the mathematical wizards that did their regressions and nobody knows. Uh, well, linear, linear regression is reasonably easy to understand. Random forests are easy to understand. But uh, there are a couple of uh, machine learning algorithms, classical algorithms in there that I don't even gonna say, try and explain to you because I don't understand them myself, which means I can't explain them. Because they're being used more often, people are forced to actually invest time uh, into this and now they can explain them. And I'm pretty sure the same is going to happen with neural networks. They're black boxes because we want them to be black boxes. And yes, we don't necessarily know exactly how it became from A to B, but we do or we can understand how the reasoning happened. So this interpretability hurdle for neural networks, I think is going to go away in the reasonably short future. It kind of depends. I mean, it, it's a it's a maturity thing exactly. to a certain extent, isn't it? Yep. You know that you won't be able to use that tech in certain scenarios until you can. Exactly. I mean, I would use the word instrument, the sort of um, you know a CNN or whatever, to the point where you can have that level of explainability. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, yeah, I think it makes sense. Yeah. Now, the one thing he doesn't uh, cover here, which I think also should be in the article, is uh, the whole idea of an ensemble algor- algorithm, where today yep. most problems aren't solved by the model, between air quotes or real quotes or whatever you yep. call them, but are done in a pipeline of models, where the first model does some rough uh, classification, so you can actually decide which neural network you can apply on what data point for better results. If you're doing things like uh, inventory prediction, how much uh, how much stuff you need in your shops, you will pretty much have a different model for eggs and butter and milk as you will have for computers, TVs, and radio sets. Yep. And yeah, it's all the same data coming in, so you probably have a, a simple logistic regression doing a classification first to decide which other th- algorithms, be they deep or non-deep, you want to use at that. And at that point, interpret- interpretability, which is a hard word to say, it's always, uh, yeah, an exercise you need to do diligently to to still understand what you're doing. Because uh, again, common sense should always be in place. Yep. So yeah, I would, I would, I would say, however, the the very final image um, <laughs> leaves me with some concern. As uh, and it, it's a uh, it's it's two buttons with one with classic machine learning and one with deep learning next to it. Two red buttons the hand hovering over them, and then the, the second frame is someone sweating profusely as if trying to decide which button to press. And I'm just deeply deeply disturbed by the fact that the, the lettering doesn't properly line up with the switch plates and the perspective. And I think that's just that's just poor hackery. So I would like to see that improved. But yeah, other than that, Yeah, Photoshop uh, failed there, I agree. <laughs> but if you're talking about the, the, the choice, actually... Uh, as I said, with the ensemble models, it shouldn't be an either-or choice, but a mm-hmm. combination of the two. And pretty often, your choice is going to be made for you by the simple question, how much data do I have for this situation? Yep. And also, uh, going directly to deep learning, it's, it's, uh, I think it's also a budgeting uh, issue here because deep learning will have a bigger offset cost than classical machine learning, which you can do quite cheap these days. And again, if you can't start with a small prediction, if you're looking for a business case, if you want to have something 
and ask for a budget to do more, you need to have something in place that at least can show the business that it can do what you want to do. If you're going to start with deep learning, you will either be doing exactly what somebody else already has done and you're just copy-pasting and, hey, cake, I can do this too. Or you're doing something more innovative and, uh, I don't know, today, and this is this is going to change, this is going to evolve, but today I think machine classical machine learning will have a lower acceptance threshold or whatever you want to call it when you try to do when you try to start with something like this so it kind of depends on what company you are what kind of company you are if you're already in a in a deep tech company you're one of those web 2.0 people out there companies out there then yeah maybe deep learning is your thing but if you're looking at the i don't know manufacturing retail industry out there uh, yes deep learning and expert systems sounds like magic and that's because they quite often are <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's a fun article. It's written in a way that anybody should understand this, If you, even if you're not a technical wizard in this land. And it uh, makes some good points. But as with all of these things, use your common sense. Mm-hmm. And there's a follow-on? Uh, oh, yes, true. I had a little other thing, which uh, I'm not going to talk about the article. It's also somewhat older. It's from the isoma.de German website, which is a company that does something with predictive analytics. I don't even care, but they have a nice little uh, visualization of the most commonly used classical machine learning algorithms there, which also used to uh, be able to, 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 to visually explain what an algorithm does to a non-mathematical person, because I like the way the little dotted lines are uh, drawn there. You like him? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> It also gives a little bit of description, advantage, disadvantage in there. So uh, quite often I have the question from people that are starting in this uh, in, the, in this, uh, this this realm of activity. Yeah, but what should I use? Well, it depends is always the answer. And it gives a couple of a rule of thumbs, let's say. Oh, you can yep. choose between different things. But it's only, uh, it says machine learning algorithms, but it does have the bottom one, that neural networks. So it does have them in there as well. It's a nice visualization for people that uh, whose mind worked that way. Fair enough. Whew, that was all very serious, wasn't it? It was all very serious. So I think oh, we should yeah. break that mold by talking about gaming. Oh, yeah. Specifically, okay. specifically, and I, I saw this, this came through my RSS feed, and the, the initial uh, sort of piece of it that caught my eye was an AI crushed two human pros I was thinking, well, did they did they drop a server on someone? Yeah, you see, those HPC clusters, they're heavy, man. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, did it topple over? I don't know. Anyway, no, that's not what it was all about. So this was a um, yeah, a Starcraft, um, Starcraft um, AI or trained AI that that defeated two of the uh, top Starcraft players. Um, and really, it's it's sort of it's an interesting article, at least interesting to me. I, enjoy gaming uh, don't do anywhere near as much as i would like to but uh, occasionally still dabble in it and you know follow some of the things that go on in it and it provides some interesting insight into some of the things that people do um to ais in order to provide a more um i'm not sure i'd say level the playing field because um, it's sort of an interesting um, dichotomy that in in this particular sense, what they were trying to do was trying to make it a little bit more evenly matched. It, it's obvious that 
um, you know, a, a good, you know, a well-trained AI, and in fact, any sort of fully automated system will be able to perform spectacularly faster in most situations than a ordinary human. You know, a, a computer as very simply can make far more decisions in a you know, a millisecond than a than a human can make for certain types of situations and scenarios, especially if you're looking at interactions with other systems. You know, the, a uh, uh, an automated system can make millions of, of requests per second. A human clicking on a, a mouse or tapping on a keyboard, you know, far significantly less than that. Um, so this this talks about the um, Google DeepMind um, sort of experiment, uh, and they they sort of they they dubbed this particular uh, AI Alpha Star, uh, and they sort of played it against two of the top uh, StarCraft players in their space, um, TLO and Mana. Um, and in sort of an initial five game series, um, you know, it was five nil, uh, in, in with, against both of them, the AI completely trouncing them. Um, then, so there's some interesting sort of stats that they part, um, sort of provide as part of this, um, you know, things like AlphaStar was trained using, quote-unquote, up to 200 years of virtual gameplay. Um, but, you know, some of the the interesting things that they were able to do with this is um, you would think that, you know, a significant chunk of the advantage was just that the thing that I mentioned about an automated system being able to make so many more um, inputs uh, than a human player, but they, they actually did... Uh, cap the number, the peak number of uh, actions per minute um, that the system could make. Now, the, there's sort of the, there's pros and cons to this, and there's, there's lots of nuance behind this. But actually, you know, this some of this was was graphed out, and they uh, the you know actions per minute were actually not all that different. You know, the peaks and the the means between Alpha Star and the human opponents. But of course, the uh, while a human can make lots of um, rapid fire inputs, the accuracy is never going to be as high as a, a fully automated system. So there's kind of there's that to, to balance into into the situation. Um, the other thing is that you know for later on um, they did things like uh, rather than the AI being able to naturally see the whole battle landscape they sort of added a uh, almost like a, a camera focus just like a human player would have they can only really see what's on their monitor at any given time and you've got the the overview map and things like that so in the end the the human players were or certainly one of the human players was able to beat the um the, the what was it called star mind or deep mind or um and they basically by doing what humans always do when they encounter artificial systems of some sort, they, they probe it and they, until they find some sort of weakness or something that the AI is not trained to deal with. And then they just hammer that particular element of it until they win. And that's, you know, he, he devised a particular strategy that the AI was just not good enough at coping with and just rinsed and repeated that because of course, the the thing about these 
models, for want of a better word, is that you know they're trained against a particular set of information, data, call it what you will. So anything that you do outside of that is, you know, it is something it doesn't know what to do with that. It will make its best judgment based on the thing that it knows that's closest to that. Um, but, you know, this is where a, a human player will always be superior in that sense because of, you know, our natural problem-solving um, abilities. So, you know, if, if you're into gaming at all and, uh, and you know, interested in uh, AIs and gaming, I thought it was quite an interesting article. It doesn't go into maybe the level of depth that uh, some of the articles that we've covered previously go into, but it is, I found it quite interesting. Um, it sort of, I think we will hopefully see a bit more about this when uh, we see some of the, the, the papers that come out to support some of the work that was done behind it. Um, so we may see a little bit more around this, but I I found it interesting, um, and uh, hopefully you will too. Yeah, it's a fun article. It kind of gives you a practical application of all of this uh, mm. artificial intelligence thing. And actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna say you were wrong. Okay, probably you, you that. <laughs> Uh, no, when you said that uh, the human could uh, uh, win from the uh, AlphaGo guy, by, uh, not AlphaGo, the DeepMind, because uh, he found a weakness and uh, yeah, kind of uh, hammered on that until he won. The thing I'm missing here is, uh, basically that's also how you defeat human players, because every human player yeah. also has a certain way yeah, of playing, yeah, no, true. and you that's know true. that, you can block that. The thing is that that other player can seize, oh shit, he has found my weakness, I now have to adapt. Mm. They didn't give the, the DeepMind a chance to do that because basically DeepMind could have done the same thing by retraining his neural network itself. Because as oh, you yeah. said, he, it was trained in a certain way. And if you look at the first graph in the article there, they started with uh, uh, supervised learning with previously trained agents yep. where they just used existing matches and uh, analyzed those. And then they went and let the uh, beginner agents, let's say, fight each other. Yeah. But I they know. were always still based in that first supervised learning subset. Yeah, yeah. And I can guarantee you if, and that's what every uh, neural network machine learning AI approach should always do in every business you may have. When you have a model, it's not finished. It's your first step. The first thing yep. you do is capture all the things where the model doesn't work well and periodically retrain your model by using more data, different algorithm or in neural networks just having it play some more uh, matches against itself, including those matches it, uh, it lost in the last year. And in the end, it will again evolve to a certain point that uh, it, it, it will be able to beat you. Now, the yep. thing it will never be able to do, unless we have uh, Terminator-level uh, AI, is be intuitive. Mm. It will always have a knowledge based on a compendium of data, it will never make an intuitive leap where a yep. human player in the same match could see oh crap, my approach doesn't work until this guy, I'm going to do this for whatever reason uh, DeepMind or yeah, DeepMind will just keep uh, playing by the rules it knows and yeah, 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 that's the difference between a sentient being I guess and uh, uh, a still rules based, even though they're fuzzy logic perhaps, that's another hype term uh, it's still a rule based yep. engine behind the scene there yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting to see that the, that the, the number of actions per second was, in, was indeed not uh, that much different from uh, the pro players. Although, when you look at those pro players, I'm not sure if it's true, but I once read that those guys 
they continuously keep clicking the mouse button. They never stop clicking. It's just the position of the mouse yeah. that changes, <laughs> just to keep it yeah, the same yeah. rhythm. <laughs> if, if you if you've never seen uh, some of this stuff actually take place, by the way, there's there's a you know there's there's endless numbers of uh, screencasts on YouTube. Just go and go and check a match out. It yeah the 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 furious continuous clicking is is one of the things that especially you know StarCraft Two especially is is very very famous for. But uh, yeah, yeah, I, like five hundred actions per minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, as I said, the thing is that not all of those actions may have been actually on target, and uh, yep. you know, there's, True. there's, there's all, there's all. I mean, there's another point that's brought up in the article about things, even simple things like pathfinding of units as they're moving around the the battlefield. You know, a, a human player will you know place a number of. Uh, you know, a number of waypoints possibly, and then kind of adjust it as 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 it's going on track. Whereas, um, you know, a, an AI is able to place those points perfectly initially and never have to revisit that. But anyway, yeah. There's, so there's it again. I thought I thought it was quite cool. I thought it was quite interesting. It scratched all the itches that uh, uh, that I was particularly interested in. And yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing um, how this continues to develop. I also did think the. Um, I'm glad you brought up the the whole kind of training agents, and then I love it the fact they call it the Alpha Star Training League. And I can just imagine this like entire room full of full of um, sort of virtual players playing each other and shouting and swearing and all that sort of thing. I know that's not actually what happens, but in my mind, that's what was happening. Like a one giant LAN party of you know two hundred years of simulated uh, uh, playing all happening at once. They're gonna get there because I say that the one thing that's missing there was that the uh, AI didn't have the same input output interface as humans were. So basically, the next step is to actually build robots that are steered yes. by the AI and just type oh, their God. robotic fingers on the robotic keyboards. Yeah, again, you're making the Terminator real. Please stop. <laughs> it all started with eyeball football. Yeah, that's true. That's true. There's no way back there. <laughs> <sighs> oh, well. Since there's no way back anyway. Anything else from you? Nothing else from me. Then we uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. And it's all the time we have for today. Um, I totally fubbed the uh, outro and I don't care. You did, yes. We'll be well done. Congratulations. Week. Yes, You fubbed the intro, I'll fub the outro that way. It's in balance again. We will be back next week with a better episode, I can guarantee you. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, well, from my end, anyway. I'm not going to talk for Dave. But until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information, including a feedback form. You can also follow us on Twitter using the AttitudeCast tag. Take a, Keep an eye out for the email address where you can get that free ticket for the Dataworks Summit. Don't forget that one. DWS19 Barcelona at RoaringElephant.org See, that's why he's my co-host. Contact us by email, send it to podcast.roaringelephant.org for anything else. Send us your thoughts, comments, criticisms, and other feedback. And until next time, my name is Jan. And my name is Dave. I look forward to talking to you. Bye. See you then. Well, that was a lot of feedback. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>